You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with me on what turns out to be one more day of spring break. Spring break caught us by surprise this year. I mean, we knew it was coming, but we thought it was a week long. And so over the course of the weekend, Kelsey and I are thinking about how we're going to get the kids back to school on Monday and getting back into the routine. And the kids look at us and go, no, school's off tomorrow. We're like, wait, wait, what? School's off tomorrow? It is. It's like spring break has extended. And I'm not quite sure why. Nobody can give me a good reason. But all that to say, uh, Kelsey and I had plans for today. And the kids have plans for today. And those plans don't exactly sync. And so we're working through all of that. But before I, I got to doing battle over those plans, I wanted to get this podcast out. This is part two of our series on fasting, really believing the Lord is leading the bridge into a season of prayer and fasting. We'll talk about it a little bit during the course of the teaching, but this is from Sunday, uh, from the uh, fasting part two message. Thanks for being here. This is week two of our series on fasting, and I, it's so interesting to me. I got more feedback from last week's message than I have from any message that we have had in a year. Um, and uh, that's good, by the way. Uh, that's, that's not a bad thing. Any, any kind of feedback at this point after teaching on Zoom, any kind of feedback is a good thing because sometimes it feels like you're just kind of talking to the wall. But the comment that I heard by far the most uh, and so if you made this comment, I'm, I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about you and everyone else who said it was, I have never thought about that before. Like uh, that, that idea of fasting or thinking about that way, that was completely new to me. And I interpret that as good because first of all, who wants to think about the same thing over and over? It's good to think about new things. And there are new things in the Bible, not new to the church, but maybe new to us that we can grow into and that we can explore. And that's what we want to do. Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus in chapter three. And he's talking about what he calls the mystery of Christ. And he prays there that they might have the strength to comprehend with all of the saints, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of God, love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that they might be filled with the fullness of God. He says, I want you to know the width of God and the depth of God and the breadth of God, how big that he is. Have you ever watched somebody who you termed or you felt was completely sincere, but when they encountered a trial or something that they didn't comprehend, it threw them off course and they walked away from God? And everybody says, they seemed so sincere. And they really were. But sincerity and depth are not the same thing. You can be sincere without having explored the depth and the width and the breadth of God. They were sincere, but they had failed to explore and develop a knowledge of the depth of God or what is below the surface. And when life throws them a storm, it tears them from their roots. And everybody says they seemed so sincere. They were, but sincerity does not give a tree the strength to stand in a storm. A root system does. Now, to grow roots takes some work, okay? Part of that depth is reflected in the question of how do you respond when presented with teaching from the Bible that you're unfamiliar with? 
So last week, as, as so many of you said, I've really never, never thought about that before. A lot of people, when they are respond, when they respond to something they're unfamiliar with, they're a little bit suspicious of it. We used to say uh, or describe it as this: uh, people are a little bit like a cow looking at a new gate. You know, they didn't quite know what to make of that. And what makes people suspicious of things is not necessarily always the teaching; it's the fact that it's new. And if people are unfamiliar or uncomfortable with an idea, they say things like, "Well, you know, I just I can't imagine that God would da 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 da." God is completely unencumbered by our limited imagination. To say that we can't imagine God working in one way or requiring something of us by other means says that you can't imagine God doing something that you wouldn't do. And in saying that, we're subtly making God into our own image rather than opening up to the idea of being made into his likeness. If you walk with Jesus over time, one of you is going to look different. Now, let me just crack the code here. He's not changing, okay? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. All the information that you take in, if it's biblically accurate, is for the reshaping of you into someone who is more like Jesus into reshaping you into being a parent or a grandparent that is more like Jesus, making you into a worker who is more like Jesus or a manager who is more like Jesus. Whatever role you find yourself in, you should reflect Jesus more than you did a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. Why is there a gap between the likeness of Jesus and the face of the church in our society? Why, why do we see the church and we look at Jesus and we go, one of these is not like the other, and over time, they should be. It's because a lot of people have refused to allow themselves to be reshaped into his image and are busy trying to reshape him into theirs. So understand the importance of allowing things that are new, like, like fasting, maybe it's a new idea to you, to shape you and affect you. Now, a valid question is, how do we remain open, but not succumb to foolishness or things that are fabricated, okay? How do we, how do we learn what is new and embrace that without getting off on a, a weird tangent? Acts 17 talks about this. It sets a pattern for weighing new information that is really a good one. Acts 17, 11 says, now these Jews, it's talking about those who lived in Berea. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Two things made the Bereans more noble than those from Thessalonica. First of it was receiving the word with eagerness. They, they were not critical. They said, well, let's take it. Let's hear what you have to say. We want to weigh it. The second part was weighing it against the whole of the Bible and the scriptures that they had. They weren't critical. They were inquisitive and they were open. A healthy, maturing Christian responds to teaching that is unfamiliar by examining the scripture to see if these things are so. And if they find them to be true, they become more convinced than they ever would be just by hearing somebody teach about them. So when you hear new things, let me encourage you. You have two responses, okay? One is to, to, to hear it and look at the word and say, okay, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. The other response is, okay, 
I don't see that. And I wonder if it's there. And so I'm going to dig in and I'm going to see if it is or not. And to be fair, at times it might lead you to say, yeah, I don't see that. But even if you don't find it, you have dug into the scripture in a way that you had not before. My hope is on Sunday mornings like this, that I lay things out for you in a way that you see them, or at least give you enough train tracks to run on so that you can find them on your own. But I'm encouraging you to be noble. Don't take my word for things. Study the Bible like the Bereans, more noble than the Thessalonians, and say, where is this? If this is foreign to me and I don't see it in his explanation, then I want to dig in and find it. There are online Bible references that no library could ever hold. It is easier to do the noble work of studying the scripture than it has ever been in history. So let's not ignore our advantages right now in being able to do that. Maybe this week in our regular email, I'll include some of those online resources. If you're saying, I'm kind of interested in studying the scripture in a deeper way online, uh, there's some really super helpful and easy ways to do it. So that's my, uh, my little commercial about, oh, this is new to me. Uh, I, I'm glad. I, we don't want to study the same things over and over again. And I would encourage you to pour through the scripture and see what you find. Uh, if you need, you may want to grab a pencil and a, a piece of paper as we step into this week. Um, some weeks we open our Bible and we just pour through a very small passage. And, and other weeks, we talk about an idea, and we, we kind of move around a little bit. We're going to move around quite a bit, and you're going to maybe want to jot things down and, and go back and look at these later. Last week, we talked about the long-term reasons to fast. We talked about tenderness before the Lord, confession of sin, the promises of God over our lives and the lives of those people around us, and a greater understanding of days to come. In his masterful plan, God gives us the gift of fasting, setting aside food or other pleasures for a season of concentrating on him and pursuit of him. And he provides benefits that are long-term as well as immediate. Wisdom seeks long-term benefits, but there are times when short-term benefits are at the forefront of our minds. And that's not short-sightedness. That's just trying to make life work. Fortunately, there are short-term benefits to engaging in fasting, things that that react and respond quickly. And so that's what we want to talk about today. I have three of these today. The first short-term benefit in responding in fasting is fasting for intervention in a crisis. Fasting for intervention in a crisis. Crisis is by nature paralyzing. If you've ever spent time in an emergency room, you know there are different kinds of people come into the emergency room. There are people who meant to go to the doctor during the day and they just didn't get to it. And they don't feel very well. So they come to the emergency room and they're a little sheepish about it. But, they, but then there's the other guy who had something tragic happen. And you can tell these people when they walk in, they literally walk in and just stop. They don't even know what to do. They're, they're hurt or they're, something's terribly wrong. Crisis is by nature paralyzing. When unforeseen, unforeseen things happen, we often don't react as quickly as we did because we're trying to figure out what happened and why. Regardless of what happened, the Bible describes of how we should respond to crisis. Now, crisis comes in at least two sizes, but I would never call them big and small because every crisis that is yours is a big one, right? Sometimes you lose sleep and encounter anguish for things on the national stage. And sometimes you are the only one in the dark hour of night that is struggling with that crisis and your heart doesn't know the difference. It feels the same to you. In Job chapter 7, 
Job says, I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. Your spirit doesn't really distinguish between those two kinds of crises because God is after your heart and he is as concerned with your personal crisis as he is with global events. Some of you struggle and think, yeah, God doesn't, doesn't care about the, the, the things that only I think are a crisis. He really does. And his prescription for those is the same as those for a national crisis. Let's talk about fasting for personal crisis first. First Samuel chapter one tells the story of a man named Elkanah. And it starts by laying out the history and his connection to substantial people throughout the Bible. But by verse two, it has this standalone sentence. There has probably never been more said in four words or one standalone sentence in the scripture. In first Samuel one, the second verse, it says he had two wives. Okay. When you say he had two wives, like the extension of thoughts that go beyond that is like, there's, there's chapters right there. Polygamy is mentioned in the Bible, but it's never endorsed. And often the family squabbles that are erupting out of that are exacerbated by the arrangement of polygamy. People go, well, it's in the Bible. Yeah, but it was never God's idea. And Elkanah has two wives, Penina and Hannah. And he has children with Penina, but Hannah has none. And Penina is ruthless. Scripture says that she provokes Hannah over this issue. She mocks her. She teases her. She points out, you know, hey, what are you going to do today? I'm going to take the kids to the playground. Oh, you have no kids. I mean, this woman is harsh. And Elkanah, as the husband, is aware of this. And he kind of tries to address Hannah's personal struggle as best that he can. I think it would be safe to say polygamy appears complicated. 1 Samuel 1, 4 and 5. On the day Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, although the Lord had closed her womb. Now, this is a kind gesture, but we've all encountered personal crisis that nobody can actually fix for us. It's not like an extra sandwich is going to make this woman feel better about the ache of her heart, okay? You have all struggled when people have asked you, what can I do for you? And you have no answer. Oh, great, lunch, thank you. That's like, this isn't addressing her personal crisis very well. And he even goes so far as to encourage her by saying, (laughs) this is a great sentence, Hey, you've got me. Am I not worth 10 sons? As if he forgot that Penina also had him and sons and daughters. Sometimes men are a little bit slow on the uptake. So Hannah fasts and she prays. She abstains from food and drink and she pours her heart out to the Lord with such intensity that she mystifies her husband and her priest thinks that she is drunk. She is that passionate about her fasting and prayer. And in response to her prayer and her fasting about her personal crisis, okay, this is her own hurt. God answers her prayer and gives her a son, but he doesn't just give her a son. He gives her Samuel, who is raised up to be a judge to the nation, a prophet, a high priest of all of the people, and ultimately a kingmaker over Israel. The woman who struggled in pain alone and fasted in private and had people think that she was a little bit crazy because of her passionate pursuit of God in her personal crisis is rewarded, not just with a son, but with a son of consequence who shapes the events of world history. 
people wonder, is it valid to fast for what I think is a crisis? Like, I think it's a crisis, but there's not another person in the world who is bothered by this. Is it valid to fast for those sorts of things? Had Hannah not fasted for her own personal breakthrough, it is not clear how David would have found his way to the throne or that his works would have been made prominent. You have the book of Psalms in your Bible. Some of you have poured over the Psalms for the past year to deal with your struggle of emotions of all that is going on. You have the book of Psalms in your Bible because a barren woman fasted and cried out to God for her personal crisis. Never apologize for praying and fasting for the things that burden your heart because when you get answers, it can shape history. Never think about your fasting is just for you. When you fast and get breakthrough, the whole kingdom benefits. But it's not just for times of personal crisis, although fasting for personal crisis is totally valid. We also fast in times of corporate crisis. Now, when I say corporate, I'm not referring to the, to the business world. I'm, I'm talking about group or national crisis. When a group, a nation, actually an individual as well, goes through a crisis, very often God is both the creator of the crisis and the relief of the crisis. Many times, Israel found themselves desperate in a situation with God because of their sin, and then God reversed Israel's desperate situation And when they turned to him in prayer and fasting. We're coming up on Easter, which of course means you know family gatherings. And uh, you know there's that one guy in the family that always makes things better. doesn't matter how tense the conversation gets, how difficult it is. They say something to make things easier. Like the turkey can be dry as can be, and all they can talk about is, man, when you put the gravy on it, it's so good. You know, they're just that positive guy who always puts things in a positive light. The prophet Joel is not that guy, okay? That's not him. Joel is the guy that says what is true. The turkey is dry. And then he tells you whose fault it is that the turkey is dry. He's not interested in painting a pretty picture. He wants to make sure the next time the turkey is not dry. And Joel prophesied repeatedly what nobody wanted to hear, and he demanded that everybody listen. Joel chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and tell your, let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. He says, pull up a pair, uh, pull up a chair, get a pencil, because the message I'm about to deliver is going to be important, not just to individuals and not just to individuals who are alive now, but for generations. He said, one day, a group of people would meet online and they would still talk about this. And then he went, what's online? I don't know what that means. But he goes, they're going to be talking about this for a long time. And here we are. His message from God was that God would judge Israel using locusts in an agrarian economy. He said, we will, God will sweep locusts in and devastate the economy. Now, that takes him a little minute to process, to figure out, oh, my, what do you mean he's going to devastate the economy? When the economy is devastated, it takes us a while to figure it out. You know, 13 years later, in an area of instant information, we're still trying to figure out the housing bubble of 2008. I'm reading articles now. How can we guarantee that it didn't happen again? We're still trying to figure out how the economy was devastated 13 years ago. 
And that devastation only wiped out stored wealth. In this case, the locusts come in and devastate profits yet to be made. He said, I'm not just devastating your stored wealth. I'm devastating your opportunity for a profit next year. And while they're processing this and they're thinking this through, Joel continues and he tells them in verse six and seven, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. And that is the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. So he repeats the prophecy of invasion in chapter two, but in both chapters one and two, he offers a prescription for a nation in crisis. He says, the locusts are coming. Behind the locusts are the Chaldeans. They're going to invade. But there is a prescription that he offers in both cases. You know what a prescription is? It is the answer for what ails you. It is the pill you need to swallow, no matter how bitter it is, if you want to move beyond your current condition. And this is how he describes the prescription for a national crisis. In Joel 1, 14, he says, Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. He repeats a similar call in chapter 2, 12 and 13. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. It's so interesting. In Joel chapters 1, 2 and 3, God is both the source of the affliction and the source of relief. He is our biggest problem if we are at odds with him, and he is our quickest answer if we respond to him the way he asks us to respond. The only role of the people in Israel in times of crisis was of fasting, mourning, weeping, and self-examination. Now, it would be a massive display of ignorance as a pastor if I were not to assume that there are some among us who are at a personal crisis that we're not aware of. I look at the little squares on Zoom and I, I know some of the crises that you're in. But I also know that behind those squares or those black boxes, there are others who are in crisis that we're not even aware of. They're so private about their pain. And you don't need to be a pastor or even all that bright to see we are in a national or corporate crisis on multiple fronts. Even as we, we're struggling with our own lives, as a nation, we're struggling. And I've... I've really tried hard to figure out how to concisely say what I am feeling on the national scale. And I want to give you a couple of examples, but if I had to loop it all under one chunk, this is what I feel the crisis we're facing is largely is a crisis of truth. A disregard for what is true in favor of a story that somebody wants to tell. This is why you can flip from channel to channel to channel and see the same events portrayed radically differently from one news source to the other. And I'm, I'm, I'm not badgering the media or blaming the media. We have the media that we've tolerated and we've, we've invited it because we want someone who tells a narrative of a story that lines up with what we already think. And if you look at almost any incident happening in the news today you can go and find a news source that tells you what you want to hear 
based on your interpretation of what little we know of the events. And there's a massive gap between what is true and what we want to believe. And we're more comfortable with what we want to believe than we are with the truth. And it is confronting us on multiple directions. And, and let me just say, I'm not approaching this as someone from one side or the other side of the political spectrum. I'm saying whatever wing you are, you can find someone who will support the narrative you want to believe, but it's not necessarily true. As a nation, we're fighting a racial divide that has always been deep, but it is widening on the surface. And I think about this a lot. I think about this a lot because I'm raising kids of six different ethnicities and I'm holding my breath for the day when one of them discovers that there are people out there who think that they can't be allies, let alone family. I mean, that day, that day will come. And it doesn't matter if it's not true. The tension is there and it's heavy unless you have the ability to just ignore it. And it's getting harder and harder to ignore. They're nearly done with jury selection in the trial for the, uh, the police officer who killed George Floyd. And I know that some would prefer to say was accused of killing George Floyd, but we, we watched it happen. That's not what the trial is about. The trial is about whether it was murder or not. The court had to decide if they were going to move the trial out of the county to avoid publicity. And I thought, to what planet are you going to move this trial? It is everywhere. In light of this trial and what, what appeared to be racially motivated killings in Atlanta, we're sitting on a powder keg with fuses that run both directions to the right and left and people on both the right and left that are willing to light the fuse. So we're struggling with racial issues, but we're really struggling with having a hard time figuring out what the truth is. We're struggling with other issues like financial instability as a nation with neither political party being willing to curb spending when they're in control. Everybody agrees it's a problem, but nobody is willing to enact a solution because nobody wants to pay the price in their lifetime. I read this sentence the other day. Let me read this sentence to you and then um, enlighten you on where I heard it because where it came from is, is a little scarier than the sentence itself. As a result of changes to Social Security enacted in 1983, benefits are now expected to be payable in full on a timely basis until 2037 when the trust fund reserves are projected to become exhausted. Okay, you understand what that's saying? We can pay Social Security till 2037 and then it's gone. Here's the frightening part. The source of that is a paper from the US government Social Security website. Social Security is saying that, that's not fear mongering. That's the people who are responsible that are saying, yeah, this runs out. We're, we're hurtling towards a financial crisis that neither side has been willing to be truthful about. We struggle with race and what truth is. We struggle with financial struggles and what truth is. And we, we struggle on inter the international level with other countries on whether or not they're being truthful with us. I think we are going into some of the greatest international difficulties of perhaps our lifetime. And in the midst of all of it, we're trying to argue about whether or not two masks is better than one. I, I don't know that how many masks is going to be the great issue of our time. And I, I wear masks. I'm not an anti-mask person at all. I'm just saying that we're so clouded. Are we are going into a season of crisis 
as a nation. And we can't afford to invest in unanswered forms of penance. We've got to see the pattern in the Bible and in history and conform ourselves to the pattern so that the cause of the crisis, God himself sees our heart and becomes the answer to our crisis that comes in prayer and fasting. So we, we fast in response to crises, personal and larger or national. Another reason we fast is for a greater release of power. There's always been a gap between the power that we read about in the Bible and what we see in our own lives. You know, very few people sing just as I am, walk the aisle, give their heart to Jesus, and suddenly have this infusion of strength that they did not have before. Oftentimes their will changes, but there are things in their life that have influence over them and addictions that control them that still exert power over their lives. We are body, soul, and spirit, and the three of those come into alignment with God's will, sometimes at different rates of speed. I've known a lot of people who've surrendered their heart to Jesus, but their ability to change their habits was slower and you have to say, what well, was their conversion genuine? Yes, but they were lacking power. That's common. But long-term, it should not be normal. I told you last week, I want the normal Christian life and the miraculous or a life of power was more normal in the New Testament than we often see in our own lives. Now, there are only a few key players in this story. God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, and us. And the Bible says that those first three don't change. Every Bible believer and Christ follower has at some time grown frustrated by the power gap between what is described in Scripture and what we see in our lives and gone, boy, it's, it's just not there. Even the disciples in their humanity grew frustrated with their own weakness in faith and the lack of power in their own lives. Luke 22 tells the story of Peter's interaction where the Lord tells him he's so weak that he's going to deny him three times in rapid succession. And Peter is incredulous. He just, he, he, no, there's no way I'm going to deny you three times. Now he knows he, he walked on water and, and, and that, that failed. He knows that he might've cut off somebody's ear at a prayer meeting in a moment of enthusiasm, but surely he will not deny the Lord. That's not an error of weak faith. It's not well-intentioned, bad judgment. He's thinking I might be a bit of a hothead, but I'm strong enough not to deny him. I've got that much power. And yet it happens so identically to how the Lord described it to him, right down to the chicken in the background, that when it does, when his lack of real power is revealed, it's like time stops for Peter for a moment. And in Luke 22, 61 to 62, the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. And he said to, when he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. All of us have at least inwardly wept bitterly at some point about the lack of power or the lack of uh, fortitude in our lives. The gap between what we read in scripture and what we're able to live out. We've all said, I can't believe I did that. And I wonder if I'd do that again. Fasting, demonstrating power over your flesh in one area, musters power in your flesh over other areas. When you deny yourself what is rightfully yours in the way of food or other things, God gives you strength to deny what is not rightfully yours. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he repeatedly rebuffs Satan's temptations. Now, there's only a few things going on here. Jesus quotes scripture, and he's fasting. 
And as we read it, well, fasting made him weak. And in one respect, that was true. The Bible said he was hungry, but fasting also made him strong. And his father gave him supernatural strength to say no to temptation. What if your besetting sin, the thing that you struggle with, the thing that nags you, the thing that you don't think anybody knows, and maybe nobody does, what if your besetting sin can be overcome by adding your fasting to God's power? He doesn't just add power over sin when we fast. He gives us power over demonic strongholds and things that we do not have without fasting. In Mark 9, there's this slightly embarrassing story from the perspective of the disciples. They encounter a man who has a demon-possessed son. Son's unable to talk. He's unable to walk. He has seizures. And if you bring in the parallel passages in Matthew where it tells the same story from someone else's perspective, you read that he throws himself into the fire, and they're afraid that he's going to wander into a pond and drown. The man is desperate. The boy was little. The boy is older now. It's getting harder to handle him. And he struggled with him for years. And if something doesn't change, he doesn't know what's going to happen with his son. Now, this situation is tailor-made for a miracle. And so the man brings him to Jesus, but he also says, um, I asked your disciples to cast him out. They were not able. Now, Jesus is moved with compassion, and he casts the demon out. He commands that the demon never, ever return. Demons are not omnipresent or omnipowerful. They yearn for a body, and he tells them, you got to find another one. You cannot come back to this young guy. The boy falls over as if he is dead, but when he recovers, he gets up, and he's completely fine. Now, the crowd clears out. Everybody goes back to the house, and it's time for the obvious question. In Mark 9, 28 and 29, when they had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? <laughs> He's like, excuse me, we, we've had a track record of we've been able to help and do some things. What happened with that boy that we couldn't do it and you could? And Jesus, you know, it would have been tempting to say, well, I'm Jesus for crying out loud. You know, I mean, who, who are you? That's not what he says, though. He said, this kind can only be driven out by prayer and in, in most versions at and fasting. By prayer and fasting. Were the disciples saved? Yes. Were they trained? Yes. Were they qualified to minister? Yes. In Matthew's account, just a few verses earlier, Peter, James, and John had met with Moses and Elijah. They were lacking nothing except for the power that comes with fasting. We fast during times of personal and corporate crisis. We fast for power over sin and for the miraculous in our life. And finally, we fast for direction. The Lord is often at the same time verbose and silent, okay? He has spoken a great deal over us through his word, through our history, through other voices in our yeah. life. And yet there are times, yeah. there are times perhaps more often than we would hope when it seems like he is silent on the specifics of what we want to do next. You know, we get the Bible out and it says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Okay, that's great. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Yeah, I get, okay, but do I buy this house? Do I marry this person? Do I take this job? Thank you for the great banner words over my life, but what about specifics? When we need spiritual insight to practical questions, the pattern in Scripture is to take all that we know about God and His nature and add it to a regimen of prayer and fasting for us to better understand God's plan for us. Unrecorded, 
But no doubt behind the scenes of the book of Acts, there must have been a lot of, now what do we do? You know, they had to have that conversation over, what do we do now? How do we go about the day-to-day operations to walk out the grand assignment that Jesus gave us? Most of us know the broad strokes of the picture that God is painting in our lives. It's the details that get, get us messed up. We know he wants us to be good parents or loyal and fruitful workers or loyal friends and disciple makers. And we can get all that with just a cursory read of scripture. But again, who do we marry? Where, where do we work? How do we invest our spare time? In Acts, those details, even those minute details, were often worked out through prayer and fasting. In chapter 13, It seems like Antioch, a church, was rich with leadership. The Bible said they had prophets and teachers, had Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, even Menean, who was a well-connected political figure. It was this pool of talent that they had, and they didn't know what to do next. So in Acts 13, 2 and 3, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to do. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they set them off. It would have been easy for them to go, what do we do next? But in living lives of fasting and prayer, they were able to hear the word of the Lord for their specific situation. In the New Testament, fasting often helped fill in the specifics to accomplish the larger, more general word of the Lord. We don't know exactly how he spoke to them, but we do know how they positioned their hearts in prayer and fasting. I love the movie. Master and Commander of the Sea, old Russell Crowe movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. But uh, there are times when they're, they're trying to move this ship and they put up this massive sail that will just catch any bit of wind whatsoever. The smaller sails are easier to control, but they just, they need some sort of movement and they put up this massive sail. Fasting puts up a massive sail in your heart to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit that you might not catch if you were not fasting. On a personal level, most of the big decisions that Kelsey and I have made over 30 years of ministry, certainly the last 20 years, have been connected to seasons of fasting. Not always a three-day fast or not even always a 21-day fast, but a period where we were fasting often. A year ago, the group that has morphed into the bridge was brought together for that purpose. We asked if some of you would fast and pray to help give us clarity about what was next. And I wish I could tell you we were given a master blueprint right down to the details of the size of the screws and the doorknobs. We weren't given that, but we were given answers. And the Lord spoke over us, stay in Kansas City. That word, followed by other indicators, led us to where we are as a church today by providing my family the stability of going into the most uprooting year of any of our lives without the additional difficulty of having moved somewhere. 2020 and 2021 have been and are difficult, but at least we're doing it in familiar surroundings. Who knows what decision we might have made apart from prayer and fasting. Many of you are in decision mode right now. Jobs, family issues, Where do I go? What do I do? I implore you, do not make any specific, significant decisions about your life apart from prayer and fasting. Don't do it. Set that big sail. It will tune your antenna to hear God's will for your life. And as hungry as you are 
to get into the process, you will look back after months and say, I'm so glad I took the time and stepped away from the table long enough to hear the Lord. I believe the Lord is calling the bridge into a season of fasting for our own crisis that we may be in, for the crisis of the nation, for the needs of our church, and for developing depth within us. And so this is where I kind of want to set our hearts for. And this is where I told you, I, I, I turned the blinker on way early, okay? Let me just put you at ease. Whatever you have set aside for dinner, you're going to eat it. It's going to be fine. But I'd like us to pray into a fast starting the Monday after Easter. 21 days of fasting, April 5th to 25th. Now, you know, why, why not start tomorrow? Nobody's stopping you, okay? But I, I'm just saying sometimes it takes a little while to figure out how do I want to do this? How do I want to fast? Some of you may fast in what we call a Daniel fast. You just no meats and no sweets for 21 days. You say, is that real? Trust me, that's real. I love meat, okay? That's a real fast. Some of you may fast a couple of, of days during the week, you might fast this day. I would encourage you if you're going to fast an entire day, do one a week. Don't do, don't do Tuesdays and Thursdays. The, the cycle kind of messes with you a little bit. But find something that you're going to say, okay. And, and I, I bless those who participate in Lent, but I grew up in a culture where people would find something to give up for Lent that they weren't really interested in anyway. You know, I'm going to give up crocheting for Lent. Do you crochet a lot? No, I've never actually crocheted. I think it's going to be fine. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying find something to fast that's going to legitimately cost you something within the bounds of what you are physically able to do. If you have physical concerns, talk to your doctor. You, I, I, I want you to do this with great wisdom, but I also, I also want to challenge you. And some of you may say, I want to fast for water, on, on water. For 21 days. It's doable if you do it well. Others are going to maybe fast certain things that you've set vast amounts of time aside to do. And, and you may want to pair that with some sort of food fasting. Uh, this is our hard and fast rule about fasting as a community. Don't ask, don't tell. Okay. That's very important. Now you may have friends that you share with what you're fasting by and large though, don't make it a, a, a topic of, of great conversation because it, it leans into comparison and uh, comparison kills fasting. You may be fasting meats and sweets and it is a massive sacrifice to you. And then you meet somebody who's just drinking juice and you just wonder, is my fast worth anything? Your fast matters. Okay. So we don't ask and don't tell comparison just kills that kind of thing. I would encourage you as we go into this, drink a lot of water. Uh, drink all the water you can, then drink a little more. It makes up for a lot of things. It's a good idea at all times. I would encourage you, if you're going to fast, don't back off on, on your exercise regimen. Now, if you're training for a triathlon, that may look differently. But those of you that are, are walking and getting out and moving around, do that. It actually will help you with your fasting. I would say while fasting, one of the big things is do not waste the opportunity. Fasting without taking the time and setting aside for prayer is just starving, okay? And we don't want to just starve. We want to fast and pray for breakthrough. I really believe that down the road, 
we will sit around the table and we will tell stories of victories that we win in this fast together. I am, uh, I'm, I'm working on an opportunity for us to gather maybe, maybe twice a week, uh, for prayer, um, during the week in, in a, in the same location. And, uh, I think we will look back and say this formed part of who the bridge is. Now the blinker is on. We're still a half mile from the exit. You have time to sort this out. You have time to ask questions. You have time to go back to all those scriptures you wrote down and say, I got to see this for myself because I really uh, don't want to think about fasting. But let me encourage you, approach it with an open mind and be a part of responding to the Lord in this way.